Good morning. Uh, I'm going to add my welcome to Nick. My name is Ian Hammond. I am your RUF International Campus Minister at Northwestern University. I, uh, I hope you had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's good to be at Grace this week. I always look forward to, to preaching at Grace, so thank you so much for having me again. I'm excited to dive into Philippians chapter 3 with you this morning. Uh, the book of Philippians, as you may recall, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And this is an uh, exemplary church in many ways. This is the church that partnered with Paul in the gospel from the very beginning. And this is also the church that took care of Paul while he was in prison. And so as you read the letter, you can see that there is this special bond that exists between Paul and this church. His love for them is evident and so is their love for him. And as we will see in our text this morning, Paul's love was sometimes expressed as defending the church from false teaching and encouraging them to uh, stay true to the gospel in which they partner. Uh, before we dive in, let's go ahead and ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father in heaven, we are asking you to do a supernatural act of grace in our hearts this morning. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood, I looked down one as far as I could until it bent into the undergrowth. That's the opening stanza to the famous Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken. Allegedly, this poem was written as a joke for Frost's friend, uh, Edward Thomas, who was like this hiking buddy that he had. He would always struggle deciding which trail to go down when they went on their hikes together. Uh, nevertheless, it was this poem in part that inspired his friend to enlist and fight in World War I for his country where he would ultimately die in battle. Though the meaning of the poem is often contested, I remember as a high school student being struck that the character in this poem, faced with a fork in the road, chose to take the one less traveled presumably the more difficult path. The last line of the poem reads, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I took Frost to mean that the character took the more difficult path, then to discover the counterintuitive truth that it was also the far, far better one. Like the character in Frost's poem, Paul faced a fork in the road. He came to this on the road to Damascus to persecute the church of Christ. Up until this point, he was on a road, a road of righteousness by means of the law. But then he encountered the risen Christ in the bright light of God's glory. And he discerned, like the character in this poem, that he could not go down both the road of the law and the road of Christ. And so he chose the Lord Jesus Christ, the far more difficult path, perhaps, but also the far, far better one, to be sure. Now here in Philippians chapter 3, the church is faced with a proverbial fork as well. They can either go down the road of the Judaizers who teach others to think about their relationship with God in terms of 
confidence in the flesh, or they can imitate the way Paul thinks about his Christian life. And so in verse 15, when Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way, we see that his main goal in this section is to get the Philippians to think like him, to embrace his mindset, which conforms to the truth of the gospel. Now, the fact that Paul includes this argument in this letter to this church attests to the fact that even the faithful can drift into wrong thinking about their relationship with God. The danger, you see, is not just the confidence in the flesh that these false teachers are pushing. It's also a passive attitude toward knowing Christ. And so we should ask ourselves... How is my relationship with God? How am I thinking about my relationship with God? Perhaps in this new year, the change that we need most is a change of mind, a change in the way that we are thinking about the Christian life. And so in, this, in these verses, Paul gives us three ways that we can imitate his thinking. He says these three things. First, revise the balance sheet. Second, pursue knowing Christ. And third, use the proper metaphor for the Christian life. So let's look at these three together this morning. First, to imitate Paul, we must revise the balance sheet. Now, the false teachers that Paul is counteracting at the beginning of our passage this morning are the Judaizers. And they are teaching the Philippians that they need to be circumcised in order to become or at least maintain righteousness before God. And Paul sees this as a move away from the gospel to a religion of self-confidence. And Paul's greatest argument against the message of the false teachers is the fact that what they are saying counts, he, ha he himself has in surplus. Paul is not just circumcised, he's circumcised on the eighth day. He is not just of Israel, he is of the faithful tribe of Benjamin. He doesn't just have the law, he's a Pharisee. He's zealous. He's blameless. It would seem to be to Paul's great gain to embrace the message of the Judaizers because by doing so, he could exalt himself above almost anyone else. Instead, however, Paul revises the balance sheet. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is using an accounting metaphor here. I didn't run this by Hannah, I'm married to an accountant, but I think he's adding things up. In the gain category, he puts all of what he has inherited by his noble birth and all that he achieved by his great effort. But then when he sees Christ Jesus, he moves all of those supposed gains into the loss category, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as the only gain. So what does it mean to count these things as loss? Well, it means that he rejects the inheritance of birth and the achievements of effort as grounds for boasting before others. Verse 3, he says, We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It also means he rejects them as the ground by which he's made righteous before God. Verse 9, we are found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Gordon Fee, the brilliant commentator, says the following about this section. Paul here implies that the gaining of Christ Jesus requires the loss of all former things. 
Because to be rich in Christ means to be rich in him alone, not him plus other gains. For Paul, it is a theological truism that grace and self-confidence are in radical opposition. Grace plus anything else cancels out grace. And so the question that arises this morning for us is, do we have a proper relationship to our inheritance of birth and our achievements of effort? You know, the default of the human heart is to glory, is to boast in these things. How can we be sure we have counted them as loss? Now, I think there probably are several diagnostics that help us to conclude this, but I have found two questions to be particularly helpful to me. First, how do I respond to criticism? Those who are boasting in achievement will find themselves overly sensitive and easily offended when others offer criticism. After a particularly frank sermon one morning, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the 19th century London Baptist preacher, faced some criticism from an older lady in the congregation that morning. After the service, she approached him and confronted him in front of everybody and said, You are the most unholy preacher that I have ever heard. After she said her piece, Charles Spurgeon very calmly leaned over to the person next to him and said, And she doesn't even know the half of it. Spurgeon was also the one who wrote to a friend dealing with unfair criticism these encouraging words. He said to his friend, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. It's a good friend that Spurgeon was. In response to someone calling him a name, Spurgeon, who resembles Santa Claus in many ways, you can Google his picture, said the following. He says, You can call me what you want, but you better not call me late to dinner. Maybe having a sense of humor about yourself could be another diagnostic. You see, Spurgeon understood what mattered most was nothing that he achieved, but Christ Jesus through whom he received the righteousness of God. You know, the criticism of others, therefore, may be helpful at some times, but did not provoke him, did not cause him to be angry or to despair. What area of achievement are you most tender to criticism? Could it be that you still have that in the gain category? The second question is, what is it that pulls me into relationship with others? You know, often the things we largely inherit, such as culture, nationality, even politics and race, are more magnetic than a shared love for Jesus Christ. You know, in reality, we should feel a greater sense of kinship with a Nigerian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ than our neighbor down the street who could, could not care less about Christ but shares the same political outlook, same college background, same social status. You know, from an earthly perspective, Paul had more in common with the Judaizers than he did with the Philippians. He, in fact, was a Hebrew of Hebrews. But with whom was Paul in greater fellowship? The Philippians sent people and goods to care for Paul while he was in prison. They prayed for Paul. Paul prayed for them. They worried about Paul. Paul worried about them. Though their backgrounds were different in many respects, their shared love for the Lord Jesus Christ bonded them together 
in affection? What is it that we find most attractive about others? What makes you want to be in another's fellowship? You know, one of the greatest evidences that we have gained the Lord Jesus Christ is that we love those who love him. Now, Paul does not limit his losses just to inheritance or achievement. In fact, he doesn't limit them at all. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now Paul here is not thinking of Christ only in the terms of the source of our righteousness. He's thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of our joy. He speaks in very intimate and personal terms. He says, Christ Jesus my Lord. He looks at Christ and considers him to be of surpassing worth. And because he thinks the Lord Jesus Christ is of surpassing worth, he considers all things rubbish in comparison to him. And he willingly suffers the loss of all things. You know, what is so striking about the life and the suffering of the Apostle Paul is that most of the time it was chosen suffering. There were several times throughout the ministry of Paul he could have avoided the shipwrecks, the beatings, the jail time, the alienation from his people, the ridicule, the shame, the persecution. He could have avoided all these things simply by giving up. You know, persecution does a lot of things in the life of a Christian, but one thing it does is it reveals to us what we prize. You know, we only willingly suffer for something that we love. What would we need to be in danger of losing to give up the Lord Jesus? Is it prosperity? Is it pleasure? Is it prestige? Paul says, take everything in advance and put it in the lost category. Count it rubbish, he says. This word rubbish is a purposely provocative term. It's the same Greek word for refuse or excrement. Paul says, when placed in comparison to knowing Christ... Everything is worthless garbage. Paul says, go ahead in advance and revise that balance sheet. Second, to imitate Paul, we must pursue knowing Christ. Now, I don't think this would be an exaggeration to say that Paul was the greatest Christian to ever live. He was indeed the apostle. His writing comprises up a quarter of the New Testament He was the one who basically pioneered this missionary movement that would eventually take over the Roman Empire. And it literally exists in every nation in this modern world. Paul was truly great. And if anyone could make claim to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be the Apostle Paul. And in fact, he does know Christ. Look with me at verse 8. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In a very real sense, Paul could have said that he already knew or had already gained the Lord Jesus Christ after he encountered him on the road to Damascus. What does it mean to know or to gain Christ? It means to be found in him, verse 9. In other words, it means to be united to him by faith. Paul addresses this very letter in verse 1, chapter 1, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at 
Philippi. It is in this knowing of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith that we are justified. It is in this knowing of Christ that we receive a righteousness, not our own, from God. Our justification is the once for all decisive act in the past. And it happens when we come to know the living Christ by faith. And yet, and yet, Paul says that even after knowing Christ in the past, he, he aims to know Christ more and more in the present. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Here we, here we see that knowing Christ by faith in justification in the past is for the purpose of knowing him by faith in sanctification in the present. Sanctification is simply this. It's coming to know Christ more and more in this life and becoming more like him. And Paul here says in verse 10 that this happens in two ways. It happens through the power of the resurrection and literally in the Greek, the fellowship of his sufferings. The same power that rose Christ Jesus, that, Jesus, that, that caused Jesus to be raised from the dead is given to those, Paul says, who look to faith, look to him in faith. The, the power that is given to us is the Holy Spirit who is poured out on all flesh as a result of Christ being raised from the dead. And so this is why what theologians call the means of grace are so essential to the Christian life. It is through the word and worship that the Spirit of God draws our eyes upward to the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, some see... Faith in Christ is kind of like the entrance into the Christian life, after which we move on to more important things. Paul here, however, argues that the knowing of Christ by faith should be the preoccupation of the entirety of the Christian life. This is how we grow. And yet we also know Christ by the often overlooked fellowship of his suffering. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God in Suffering and Pain, observed the following about suffering in the scripture. He said, some suffering is given to correct and chastise wrongful patterns of life, as is the case with Jonah in peril by the storm. Some suffering is not to correct past problems, but to prevent future ones, as is the case with Joseph being sold into slavery. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently, for himself alone, and thereby discover the ultimate peace and freedom. Paul has this third use of suffering in mind here. It is through suffering that we come to know the living Christ more and more. As, as Keller says in another place, sometimes you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Paul knew Christ in the past, pursued knowing Christ in the present, and he did this so that he might know Christ fully in the future, verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul refers to the resurrection this way. He says, right now we look in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully as we have been fully known. Knowing Christ in sanctification is for knowing him in the resurrection. This not yet future is what Paul is longing for and looking forward to attain by any means possible. In Paul's mind, it doesn't matter if it comes by his death in prison now, his death later on, or the return of Christ at the end of the age, he would attain the resurrection of the dead 
by any means possible. You know, some see a lack of certainty here in Paul's words about attaining the resurrection. But Paul, just as Paul was confident that God would bring to completion the good work he began in the Philippians, he knew that God would bring to completion the good work that he started in him. Paul already knew Christ and would know him more fully in the resurrection. But until then, he made it his priority to pursue knowing Christ in the present more and more. This is literally the substance of the Christian life. Third and lastly, to imitate Paul, we must use the proper metaphor. So based upon the reality that none of us have attained full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says we must have a particular mindset. And so in order to explain the way Paul himself thinks about the Christian life, he gives us a vivid metaphor to capture his attitude, his philosophy for the Christian life. On April 19th, 2014, 36,000 runners laced up their shoes for the 118th Boston Marathon. And this one was especially significant. You remember that it was the previous year that the Boston bombings had occurred, uh, where three people lost their lives and many more were injured. As you can imagine, the day of the race was filled with intense emotion. And it exploded with excitement when it was discovered who won the race. For the first time since 1983, an American won the Boston Marathon. With the names of the victims written on his chest, a man named Meb crossed the finish line first and the crowd went crazy. People stood to their feet cheering, USA, USA, USA. And he threw up his hands in victory, not because he had just won a race, but because he had become a symbol for American perseverance. Is it not striking that when Paul sums up his way of life, he uses a metaphor of running a race? Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize. This word press on in the Greek is dioko. It means to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective, to hasten, to pursue, to run. This speaks to the tenacity in which Paul chose to live his life. He was always seeking to move forward, to press on, to run, to pursue, to reach his goal, to win his prize. Now I'm curious, if you were to reflect over this past year, what metaphor could you use to describe your Christian life, to describe the way you thought about it? Now as I reflected on Paul's mindset in his life, I was greatly challenged and greatly humbled. You know, sometimes I think the most fitting metaphor is that of the lazy river. Are you familiar with the lazy river? I would go to the water park as a kid, and there was this river that, or this pool that encircled the entire water park, and there'd be like this gentle current, and parents would like sit on their floats and just like slowly circle the park. And as a kid, I thought this was incredibly boring. But sometimes this is exactly my mindset as it relates to the Christian life. There's a slackness, there's a complacency. And dare I even say, a laziness. I operate under the false assumption that the Christian life can be lived passively. 
The Apostle Paul, however, was one who married the sovereign, free grace of God in the gospel with pressing on, with working out. He says, I press on to make it my own, verse 12. In the previous chapter, he tells the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the mindset that Paul wants us to have. So how can we press on in the Christian life? I want to conclude with three words of application. First, we must recognize that we have not arrived in the Christian life. Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I like the way John Piper says it. He says, develop a holy dissatisfaction. He says, look in the mirror of God's law, God's word, and recognize that you have not yet arrived. The hearty admission of our spiritual imperfections is the starting point. For the pursuit of God. You know, this isn't so much to awaken shame as it is to awaken spiritual hunger. This isn't so much to shift the focus onto you, but onto the object of your desire. Paul says in one breath, I am not perfect. In the next breath, I press on. He quickly moves from himself to what he's aiming at, and so should we. Secondly, don't look back. Paul says in verse 13 that he forgets what lies ahead. You know, I don't know much about sprinting, as you could probably tell. I'm not a sprinter, but I did play football in high school, and I can remember our football coach telling our running backs, when they're running with the football, don't look back. It slows you down. Look forward towards the goal line and run. You know, there's a way in the Christian life, or even the life of a local church, to look back at the glory days, when God was doing wonderful things in your midst, you made much progress, you, done, you did many great things. There's a way of looking back at those and discouraging your pursuit in the present, becoming complacent, content with how far you come. And there, isn't, there even is a way of looking back at your failures in the Christian life that bogs you down. You know, it is a fact that we have all failed God in tremendous ways. This is true of all of our heroes throughout church history. This is true for all of our heroes in the Bible except Christ. We have failed God in great ways. But there is a way of being preoccupied with the past that is unhealthy. Now I'm not saying that if there is sin in your past that you need to repent of or seek reconciliation and make things right that we shouldn't do that. But I am saying that we should not allow our past to set the terms of our future. Paul says, only look back for the purpose of moving forward. Otherwise, forget what is behind. Third, strain to what is ahead. Verse 13, he says, he strains to what is ahead. In other words, look to the reward before you and be motivated and exert yourself. What is ahead for Paul? Verse 14, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That same call that Paul received on the road to Damascus was into communion with the living God through knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And he presses on to the fullness of that communion found at the finish line. Look to this prize, work toward this with every effort. Live out your calling to know and to serve the living Christ with your life. In the 1992 Olympic Games in Spain, the British runner Derek Redmond lined up for his 400-meter race. And as you imagine, he had trained intensively for several years for this very moment. Everything would come down to this. 
And so he takes off from his blocks, and the worst thing that could ever happen to a runner occurred. He pulled his hamstring, and he toppled to the track in tremendous pain. Refusing to accept this, he struggled to his feet and began to hobble. But before anyone could stop him, his father scaled the retaining wall, hopped out onto the track, and met his son. And his son leaned on him. And the crowd stood to their feet and cheered them on as they passed the finish line together. You know, like all analogies, uh, the analogy of running a race can be taken too far. In the race that we are running, we're not competing against others. We are running arm in arm. We are running together. And everyone who finishes this race receives the prize. And your freedom to finish this race does not come down to any inherent ability that you might have. It comes down to this one thing and this one thing alone. Verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The reality is, is we're all like Derek Redmond. We run with a limp. We hobble. We are all unable to finish this race on our own. The only reason anyone could ever finish this race is because the Lord Jesus Christ himself went before us. He exchanged gain for loss. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus Christ finished his race. He secured his prize. The Lord God the Father bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And he did this for you. He did this to make you his own. And it will only be by his grace, by the power of his spirit, that we will reach to what lies ahead. And if we lean on Christ in this new year, we most certainly will attain it. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are all at different places this morning. Some of us need encouragement. In fact, we all need encouragement, Lord. Give us a great sense, Father, of your grace. Help us in each moment as we seek to lean on our Lord Jesus Christ. Meet us, we pray, in this new year. For his sake, amen.